We're in the midst of a series of sermons going through the life of Abraham, a foundational figure in the Bible. And like I've said the last several weeks, the Bible is the story of how God is dealing with evil. Abraham is a foundational figure in that story. Now this morning we pick up in Genesis chapter 13. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to to open your Bible or scroll down if you're one of those. Genesis chapter 13. Abraham has just escaped Egypt. The only reason that Abraham escaped Egypt The only reason that Abraham is alive is because God intervened. So Abraham is traveling with that on his mind. I really messed up. I came this close to being destroyed. And I ended up better than I was before all of my foolishness. And it's all because God intervened in mercy and in power. So here is Abraham traveling with that on his mind, the many, many miles out of Egypt and up into Canaan. And he doesn't stop on the border of Canaan. He goes all the way to the heart of the land, to the heart of Canaan, to the place. Look what it says in Genesis 13 verse 4, where he had made an altar at the first So Abraham, with this on his mind, that God's mercy and God's power means I'm not dead. It means I am alive. And in his mercy and grace, I'm better off than I was before all of my craziness. He makes a beeline for the altar he had last built before he went off into craziness. He gets there and look what it says. And he called upon the name of the Lord. This is rededication. This is reconciling himself to God. This is repentance. This this is Abraham coming back to the Lord, recommitting himself to God, recommitting himself to something in particular, a thing he had stopped doing in Egypt, recommitting himself to trusting God. That was his sin. His sin was that he didn't trust God. And as a result of not trusting God, he made bad decisions. He sacrificed his wife. He was selfish. He was ego-centered. All sorts of crazy stuff. So he recommits himself. He rededicates himself to a life of trust in God. And then almost immediately, he finds himself in another conflict. Look at verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now, if you're counting, this is Abraham's third test of faith. This is his third trial. Go back to chapter 12, verse 10. The famine, right at the end, the famine was, if you write in your Bible, underline this next word, severe. Severe in the land. That was Abraham's second trial. A severe famine. Now, this part of the Bible was originally written, not in English or French or Spanish or... Whatever version you're reading, it was originally written in Hebrew. 
And the Hebrew word, in the original, the Hebrew word there is literally heavy. It was a heavy famine. But in that context, you wouldn't translate it literally because it's, famines aren't necessarily heavy. It's the way the Hebrews described a big famine, a serious famine. Now, the reason that's interesting is because when you get to chapter 13, verse 2, Abram was very rich in livestock. Same word. Heavy in livestock. In other words, his second trial was the heaviness of famine. His third trial was being heavy with wealth. The narrator uses the same words because he wants you to see that this is a test of his faith. In chapter 12, Abraham's faith was tested in a season of bankruptcy and scarcity. Would he trust God? In chapter 13, Abraham's faith is tested in a season of wealth. Will he trust God? In chapter 12, no, he doesn't. He fails miserably. He doesn't trust God. Instead, in this story, the opposite of trust is fear. Instead of trusting God when when he has no resources, he's afraid. Instead of trusting God in the face of Abraham of, of the Pharaoh of Egypt, who's a threat to his life, he's afraid. And out of his fear, he makes immoral choices that harm other people. He manipulates. He takes matters into his own hands. We saw that last week. But this week in chapter 13, he succeeds magnificently. He trusts God. How does Abraham respond to the fact that he and his nephew have so much wealth now that the land, which is just recovering from a famine, can't support them? What does he do? He gets Lot, and look what it says. Chapter 13, verse 8. He says, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I'll go to the right. If you take the right hand, I'll go to the left. Now, here's another way you're supposed to compare chapter 12 and chapter 13. This is only the second time Abraham has spoken. Do you remember the first time he spoke? It was when he looked at Sarah and said, Oh, you're beautiful. They'll kill me. Offer yourself instead. The second time, it was his fear. It was Coercion and manipulation, it was wrong, it was wicked, it was immoral, it was selfish. Protect his life, hold his wife out there as a carrot in order to protect him. And then the next time Abraham speaks, he's again in a test. He's again, his faith is being tested. And this time it's the exact opposite. This time he disadvantages himself. He says to Lot, You have the pick of the land. Even though Abraham is the patriarch and Lot is the nephew, even though Lot's wealth is a result of God's favor on Abraham, even though the promise to God of God to Abraham is that Abraham has the whole land, even though in face of all of that, he's the opposite of what he was in chapter 12. He's generous. He's self-effacing. He's self-sacrificing. Abraham has learned a lesson. God has educated him. And through Abraham, God is educating us. 
He's showing us how fear works in our life and how faith works in our life. He's showing us that that faith in God gives us the freedom to be generous. Because Abraham believes that God is giving him the whole land, he doesn't have to grab it. He doesn't have to claim it. He doesn't have to fight other people. He doesn't have to be jealous. He doesn't have to be covetous. Do you see how the story is written to force you to look at your own life? And to say, how are you operating? Trusting God. Trusting that God will keep his word. This gives Abraham the ability to not be anxious. Anxiety. Anxiousness. This is, this is the action of unfaith. The action of faith is trust and peace and an incredible ability to be extravagantly generous because it doesn't depend upon you. So what about you? When it comes to wealth, when it comes to lack of wealth, do you trust God? Or, or maybe the trials in your life are not centered around money. Where, wherever they are, are you living out of faith in God to provide and protect? Or are you a coward? Are you stingy? Are you covetous? Do you fight for your rights or do you relinquish your rights? Well, Lot, he made his choice, and he heads off, and as soon as Lot departs, notice, for the first time since way before Egypt, God speaks to Abraham again. In other words, not only are you supposed to be struck that Abraham has spoken twice, you're supposed to be struck that God has now spoken twice. And that while Abraham was in Egypt living out of fear, being manipulative and immoral, he lost the voice of God. But now that he acts in faith with generosity, he once again hears the voice of God. His obedience of faith ushers in this incredible gift to once again hear from God. It's interesting. In Egypt, Abraham failed to trust God and he was a coward. And he never heard from God. But when he acts in faith with generosity... And self-effacement. God speaks to him. And then. We get to Abraham's fourth trial. Genesis chapter 14. Barbara did a valiant job. Didn't she? How would you have liked to have gotten that reading? We were first going to offer it to Stephen. (laughs) Stephen's great love for reading to the church. As the chapter begins. Five kings come down from, from north. They come down in the, into the south of the promised land. Down into Canaan. I'm sorry. Not five kings. Let me start over. Five kings in the south of the promised land. In the south of Canaan. These five kings around the Dead Sea area are headed up by the king of Sodom. And they're revolting. Against their overlords, their Mesopotamian overlords. Probably they were refusing to pay their yearly 
tax, their yearly tribute. As a result of them revolting, four Mesopotamian kings, overlords, form a coalition. They gather their armies and they head south into Canaan. Now, these Mesopotamian kings are from modern-day Iraq, modern-day Iran, and Turkey, that general area. They head south into Canaan, and their agenda is to whip this situation into shape, is to bring their vassals back into line. Now, this is not neat and tidy stuff. War never is. As they march through Canaan, they lay waste to every nation they encounter. They raid, they conquer their way south. Now, in the meantime, Lot had chosen Sodom as the part of the land when Abraham gave him an option. So when this conquering army gets to Sodom and sacks the city and captures its inhabitant, one of those inhabitants is Lot. They capture him and then they head back north With their captives, with all of the plunder they've gotten, more than likely, based on what we know of the way war worked at this time in this area, they're going to sell off the captives as slaves for, um, for more income. So Lot gets caught up in this. He's captured. He's hauled off by this victorious army that's heading back to Mesopotamia. Now, that's the first half of Genesis chapter 14. The second half of the chapter opens with somebody who survived the sacking of Sodom, who's run and made a beeline for Abraham that settled in in a different part of Canaan. He gets to Abraham. He tells him what's happened. He tells him that not only has Sodom been sacked, but that Lot was captured. And suddenly... The man of peace, right? In chapter 13, peace at all costs. Chapter 13, Lot, you and I don't need to have hostility. I will will disadvantage myself for the sake of peace. The man of peace in chapter 13 becomes a warrior in chapter 14. Now, I know that there there are many people who are Mennonites or from the Mennonite world. This is a discussion for another time. But the patriarchs were not pacifists. Abraham is not a pacifist here. In, in, in chapter 13, he is. In chapter 14, he is not. And what does he... Now, now, I'm not trying to argue where we should land. I'm not a pacifist, so you know where I think we should land. But, but here, what, but what you need to see is that suddenly this man who's been acting out of fear and then as a peacemaker suddenly becomes a warrior. And he rises up and he leads... A military campaign tracking the Mesopotamian kings up to the north where they're headed back to their homes. Now, can you see how Abraham is changing? Can you see that here he trusts not in God to be generous like he did in chapter 13, but here he trusts God for protection and it enables him to be courageous. Back in chapter 12, when Abraham was disadvantaged and his life was threatened as a result of the disadvantage, he sacrifices his own wife in order to protect himself. Now, it's not even his wife on the line. It's his nephew on the line. And he puts his his own self in harm's way. He risks his own life. 
Back in chapter 12, when, when Abraham put his wife out there as a shield to protect himself, God disciplined him. So guess what has happened to Abraham? He learned his lesson. And he's imitating God. God intervened to protect Sarah. So now Abraham is imitating God, intervening to protect Lot. This is amazing to me. One of the things that I am most struck by about Abraham is how he accepts the discipline of God. God disciplined Abraham and he humbly learned a lesson. Now parents, have you ever disciplined a child that refuses to learn the lesson? Can you see that Abraham is acting not like that kind of a child? Abraham is acting like the child that receives the discipline and says, Okay, I submit. I yield. I will change my behavior. Now my question for you is this. How do you respond to God's discipline? Do you humbly receive God's discipline when you sin? Because God, we, we looked at the passages last week where it says, God, this is how he works. He disciplines us because he loves us. My question for you is looking back at your life, when you have made mistakes, when out of fear you have acted in ways that are immoral, when you have stopped trusting in God and instead done things you shouldn't have done and God disciplined you for it, did you respond like Abraham? This is the remarkable thing about him, is how, how sensitive he is to learning from God as his teacher. Do you allow God to be your teacher or do you insist on the God of the universe living according to your agenda, your value system, your view of the world? This is what's amazing about Abraham. He doesn't. And so when he saw God intervening to protect the, 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 those who couldn't protect themselves, he learns a lesson and he does. Abraham is courageous. He risks his own life. This is daring faith. Don't think of this as Hollywood courage. Hollywood courage is stupid. It's anger-driven. It's bravado-driven. This is faith-driven, trust-based courage. Very, very different. This is daring faith. The man of peace has suddenly, out of his faith in God, he's, he's, he's expressing a physical and a mental toughness. By the way, the book of, Ab- of Revelation says that cowards go to hell. Revelation 21.8. Cowards go to hell. It's, it's cowardliness in this context. It's a cowardliness at the end of an entire scripture that has defined what courage and cowardliness is. It's those who will not trust in God. And it is a trustless cowardliness that goes to hell. 
You see, faith never exists in the abstract. It only exists in the action. Faith, in Abraham's faith is faith in the act of generosity. It's faith expressed in the action of courage. Now, on his way back from battle, Abraham gets near Jerusalem. And he's met by Melchizedek, this shadowy, mysterious priest king of Jerusalem. Look at Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, Salem, last word in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Salem. Psalm 76 identifies Salem as Jerusalem. Anyway, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him. And he said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, a couple of things. This is the first time Abraham eats and drinks. Just as a side note, I asked my kids, we're reading through Abraham's life for our family devotions. Last week we read through the story and I asked them, when do you see a priest with bread and wine in his hand pronouncing blessings? And they interpreted the Bible better than many, many people. What's the answer to the question in worship? This is a worship service. There's bread, there's wine, there's a priest, there's blessing, there's a vow. That's what we do every week. All right? Now, this is the first time that Abraham eats and drinks. And it's a royal feast. Because a common way of eating at the time would have been bread and water. But instead, this is bread and wine. This is a king's feast. Not on, we know it's a king's feast, not only from its menu, but from its location. Did you pick up where its location is? Look at verse 17. In the Valley of Shaveh, just in case you don't know what Hebrew names means, that narrator interrupts to press the point home, that is the king's valley. So it's the menu of kings, it is the location of kings. What's going on here? Abraham has purged the land in his conquest. The land of famine and dearth has become a land of plenty, full of wheat and wine, right? If you're reading this as narrative, in chapter 12, there's famine. In chapter 13, there's not enough for the, for the two families. And then suddenly in chapter 14, a feast. <laughs> I mean, do you get the way the narrative is pushing you? Do you get the way that it's showing that, that something has happened? There's been a conquest. It's been purged. And this land of famine is now a land of plenty. And Abraham is taking his place as master of the land. He's being feted as king, the conquering king. And bread and wine are his victory steel. You know what a steel is? S-T-E-L-E. These like little bitty monuments that inscribe the victory. His victory steel is bread and wine. You feel you're being set up, I hope. Now, if you know the rest of the story of Abraham, you know this victory feast is a little premature. Abraham's descendants don't actually conquer the land of Canaan for several centuries. But here, he's eating a feast in the Valley of Kings as the conquering king, as the ruler of Canaan. But it actually doesn't come to reality for several centuries. But don't you see 
that the whole shape of the narrative, as we've been seeing over the last few weeks, is that Abraham is learning to do what? What is the key thing Abraham's learning? Live in faith. Faith in what? Faith in the promise of God to give him that land. What kind of feast is this? It's a feast of faith. It's just like when he built the altars in the land. He was worshiping God in the land as an act of faith that this is indeed going to come true. And now he's eating as the king of the land as an act of faith. Faith that God will keep his promises. And so he eats a conqueror's meal in a land that is not yet his. This is a type, a picture, an allegory, a foreshadowing of who? Jesus Christ. First of all, look at, the, look, look at this whole story. This is so remarkable. God, look, in the Bible, God can not only use literature to make an allegory of future events, he can use history to make an allegory of future history. That's what it's called in theology, a type. We're like Lot. We're citizens of a, of a fallen city. We are captives of a foreign power. Our hearts are full of greed and cowardice like Lot. Like Lot, we grab the best for ourselves. We abuse others who we should not abuse. We sin and we're in the grip of sin. And evil is a reality in our world and in our hearts. But in his life, Jesus went to battle against our enemies. He rode north. And on the cross, Jesus, the seed of Abraham, rescued us from the one that had enslaved us. And in his resurrection, Jesus turned the desert into what? A garden. Right? John's gospel. After he rose from the dead, the people closest to him in life came up to him and mistook him for what? The gardener. The resurrection turns the desert into a garden. Abraham's conquering has turned the land into a land of plenty. Jesus' conquering turns this world again into Eden. He has won the victory. And in our salvation, like Abraham, he enthrones us as princes and princesses to feast in the valley of the kings. He has won the definitive victory. To be a Christian is to trust in that. To be a Christian is to have been rescued by the conquering one. And to lean on that rescue with all of your weight. To center your whole life around that thing. Like this, like this I don't know, pre-cosmos piece of matter that has everything in it. That bends your life like gravity. For those of us who've been around Christianity for a while, this is familiar. But can you imagine what it's like for those in this room and for those in the world who are hearing this for the first time? Can you, can you hear what we're learning? We're learning that the way to God is faith. That's remarkable. If you're used to that, you've forgotten it. He could have made another way. He could have made your righteousness the way. He could have made your wealth the way. He could have made your moral superiority the way. Or like me, your stunning good looks. But no, thank goodness for some of you. He made faith the way. I've been thinking about this all week and I don't know why. I mean, I can, I can justify it. 
But I'm not sure I understand its foundation. I know how it affects me. I know that it makes me humble. I know that part of coming to God is becoming human again, like I talked about last week. And I know that faith makes me humble in, in, uh, in front of the great almighty God. And that has a profound humanizing effect. I can see all of that. But at the end of the day, it's a deep mystery. God has chosen faith. Faith as the way. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And in one of Paul's letters, he puts it so plainly. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I, I deeply suspect that the reason faith is the path is because it humanizes us. And what I mean by that, it rehumanizes us. It makes us into true humans. There's something about faith that makes us into what we were made to be. In another part of scripture it says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Like Lot, we are citizens of a fallen city and captives of a foreign power. But Jesus Christ has gone into battle for us. He Go to him. Put your faith in him. Put your faith in what he did. Really believe that you are in trouble. Honestly own up to the data of your life. And that before a holy God, you don't measure up. But wonder of wonders, beauty of beauties. The way out of the conundrum is faith in Jesus Christ. One more thing. For Jesus, the passage I read before, out of the end of Matthew's gospel, when he was having his meal, did you notice the similarities? Here is Jesus eating bread, drinking wine. For Jesus, just like for Abraham, his celebratory, kingly feast of bread and wine was a bit premature. It was on the eve of his betrayal and crucifixion. Within hours of Jesus' kingly celebratory feast, he has been betrayed by one of his own, arrested, slanderously accused, unjustly tried, tortured, and sentenced to crucifixion. But in the face of that, Jesus is feasting in faith, in faith that the Father will raise him from the dead. Now, in a few minutes... A priest is going to offer you a premature feast. A royal meal with roots all the way back in Abraham. Picked up in the hands of Jesus. You're going to be offered a victory feast. And you know it's premature. The world we live in is a wasteland. In our own lives. How many of us are going to be offered the feast of a king knowing that in our own hearts our habits and desires and our own lives are actions that are evil and wicked and selfish and greedy. And our vocations take us into a world 
that is evil. And so let us learn from Abraham. And let us learn from Jesus. To believe the God who brings life from the dead. Let us eat a conqueror's meal in a land that is not yet ours. With hearts that are not yet fully transformed. And as we come to the table, let us embrace the truth that the sons of Abraham not only live in faith, we eat victory meals in faith. To the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.